We've been studying the book of Jonah, and in chapters 1 through 3, uh, we saw Jonah go from disobedience to obedience. Uh, we saw in the beginning of the book how the word of the Lord came to his prophet Jonah, uh, commanding uh, Jonah to go to the pagan city of Nineveh uh, to call out against uh, that heathen city, because the Lord said their evil had come up before him. We saw how Jonah thought that he knew better than God, and he disobeyed God's clear command, and he ran in the opposite direction. In fact, he sought to run away from the presence of the Lord. He sought to run away to Tarshish, which was on the opposite side of the known world from Nineveh. Yet the Lord is sovereign. The Lord fulfills His purposes. He had a purpose for bringing a message to Nineveh. His purpose was to show grace and mercy to that heathen city. And so the Lord opposed Jonah. The Lord sent a great storm as Jonah was on that ship heading towards Tarshish, uh, which stopped that, that ship. And the mariners thought that they were going to, to perish in the storm. And Jonah told them, there's one thing that you can do to stop this storm, and that is to throw me overboard. I'm a servant of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who made the heavens and made the earth. I have been running away from Him. If you throw me into the sea, the storm will come to an end. Jonah was not repenting. He should have been repenting. He should have been calling upon the Lord for mercy. But instead he said, throw me overboard. The reluctant sailors finally did so. And the Lord calmed that storm. Jonah was sinking down to the bottom of the ocean. As far as he knew, he was just about to drown. But the Lord appointed a great fish that swallowed Jonah. And for three days and three nights, the Lord preserved Jonah in the belly of that great fish. The Lord turned Jonah's heart back to him. And Jonah praised the Lord for his great salvation. How he had delivered Jonah from perishing. It was a, a, a psalm of turning back to the Lord. A psalm of giving thanks to the Lord. Praising the Lord uh, for his salvation declaring that wonderful statement, salvation belongs to the Lord. After three days and three nights, God commanded the fish to deposit Jonah on the dry land, and the fish obeyed. Deposited Jonah there, and the word of the Lord came again to Jonah. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will give you. This time, the prophet obeyed. He went from disobedience to obedience. He obeyed the Lord. He went to Nineveh, and he went into that great city, and he called out, yet 40 days, and the city will be overturned. It was a warning of God's impending judgment. It was a call to repent of their evil deeds. And... There was a great work of the Spirit of God. As the Spirit of God worked through the Word of God, 
that had come out of the, the lips of the prophet Jonah, the Spirit worked in hearts and lives, granting repentance unto life. There was a great repentance that went through the city, even to the king, where the, the king issued a decree calling upon all in the city to call out to God, to turn away from their evil ways, to turn away from their violence with the hope that God might relent of this disaster of which he had warned. We're told in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, that the Lord saw that they turned from their evil ways, and the Lord relented of the disaster which he had said would come upon them. Now, if outward obedience to God were all that matters, then chapter 3 would make a good conclusion to the book. Jonah has now obeyed God. There's been an extraordinary work of the Spirit of God in hearts and lives in Nineveh. And God has relented of the disaster of which he warned. But that's not the end of the book. We have another chapter, chapter 4. And it is not until chapter 4 that we get to the message of the book. We have chapter 4 because the heart of God's servant matters to God. It matters what you think of God. Your attitude toward God, your attitude towards His actions matters. Your attitude in serving Him matters. Your attitude in obeying Him matters. In one way or another, every believer who takes an honest look at his own heart can relate to Jonah can relate to Jonah in his resentment towards God's grace and mercy being given to others, or can relate to Jonah in his self-righteousness, or can relate to Jonah in his pride, or in his attitude of being entitled to better treatment than others. These are sins of the heart that are exposed in chapter 4, that we might repent of them, that we might bow before the excellencies of God, that we might be transformed by God's grace and mercy from the heart outward. Our text starts at verse 5. However, I want to back up to verse 1. I'm going to read the fourth chapter of Jonah. Please stand in honor of the Word of God if you are able. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed, I'm sorry, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, 
It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left, and also much cattle? This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Our text this morning is verses 5 to the end of the chapter. A text that goes hand in hand with the first half of the chapter. So today's message is really a continuation of last week's message. Today's passage continues to expose Jonah's heart, and at the same time to expose our hearts. The passage continues to confront the heart that reacts negatively to God's gift of grace and mercy to others, so that we might repent And that we might rejoice in God giving grace and mercy to others. In our passage, the Lord makes His point in three stages. In the first stage, the Lord graciously and mercifully gives Jonah shade. In the second stage, the Lord removes His grace and mercy from Jonah. And in the third stage, the Lord addresses Jonah's hard heart. This address... From the Lord to Jonah is in verses 10 and 11. And it is by far the most that God says to Jonah in the book. Earlier God spoke to Jonah twice, commanding him to go to Nineveh and call out against it. In chapter 4, verse 4, the Lord asked, Do you do well to be angry? The Lord asked a similar question in chapter 4, verse 9. And then we have God's words addressing Jonah's hard heart in verses 10 and 11. The Lord's words in 10 and 11 are the conclusion of the book and express the message of the book. Now to make his point, the Lord first graciously and mercifully gives Jonah shade. We see this in verses 5 through 6. Let's look closely at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. In the previous verse, the Lord gently rebuked Jonah for his anger. Do you do well to be angry? After Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, Jonah became angry that the Lord gave them the message of warning. Jonah knew that when people repent, the Lord relents of the judgment of which he has warned. Jonah was angry that the Lord was being gracious and merciful to Nineveh, evil people who were outside the nation of Israel, outside the covenant people of God. Everything that Jonah feared when God first commanded him to go to Nineveh was coming to pass. They had repented. And Jonah fully expects God to relent of that disaster he had warned of. He fully expects God to save them from his judgment. Everything that Jonah feared was coming to pass. The Lord gently rebuked Jonah in verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? 
Now upon hearing that question, Jonah should have repented. He should understand, no, I do not do well to be angry. I am wrong to be angry. We talked about that last time. Jonah should have repented upon hearing those words from the Lord. But instead, what does he do? He leaves the city in anger. And he picks a place to sit and to watch what will become of the city. Now, he should have stayed in the city to teach the people about the Lord and His ways. The Spirit has done a great work through the Word of God in in, in granting repentance unto life. They believed the Word of God that came to them through Jonah. It was for Jonah to teach them of the Lord and His ways. But Jonah, in anger, left that city. He will have nothing to do with teaching the Ninevites about the God who relents from disaster. Jonah hopes that God will do Jonah's will and overthrow the city like the Lord did over a millennium earlier to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he sits outside the city with that hope that the Lord will do Jonah's will. Now, knowing that the sun will be severe, Jonah makes a booth for shade. He probably makes this booth out of branches, maybe leafy branches, we don't know. But somehow he makes some kind of a structure um, to give him some shade from the, the, the sun. But what he makes does not provide adequate shade. Look at what the Lord does in verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. We see here that the Lord does not give up on Jonah. If we were in the Lord's position, we might have given up on this hard-hearted prophet. But the Lord didn't give up on Jonah. Rather, the sovereign Lord appointed a plant. Just as earlier, in chapter 1, verse 17, He had appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, just as the Lord will appoint a worm and will appoint a scorching east wind in the following verses. Here, He appointed a plant. As the Sovereign Lord, He uses His creation to fulfill His purposes. And here the Lord appoints a plant to quickly grow and shade Jonah. We don't know if it's a miracle in how quickly this plant grows and shades Jonah, or the Lord used a plant that is very, a very fast-growing plant. What matters is that God was gracious and merciful to Jonah, and He provided him a shade from the hot sun. As what Jonah had done for shade was inadequate. Now, it's very significant that... God's purpose for the plant is what it's stated to be. I want you to observe in verse 6, God's purpose for the plant. It is to save him from his discomfort. To save him from his discomfort. It's very significant that in the original language, this word discomfort is the same word as the word disaster in chapter 3, verse 10. Back in chapter 3, verse 10, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to Nineveh. And now here in our text, the Lord acts to save Jonah from the discomfort of the blazing sun. Discomfort 
disaster, same word in the original languages. God relented of the disaster he would do to Nineveh. Here, God saves Jonah from the discomfort of the blazing sun. What is the Lord doing? He's making an analogy. An analogy between the Lord saving Nineveh from his judgment and the Lord saving Jonah from the blazing sun. Now, you remember how Jonah responded to the thought that the Lord would save Nineveh. Look back at chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, how does Jonah respond when the Lord saves him from something lesser? Chapter 6, second half. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So in verse 1, he, it displeased him exceedingly that God did not relent from the disaster that he said that he would bring upon Nineveh. Now, in chapter 6, Jonah is exceedingly glad because of this plant that God has provided in His grace and mercy to save him from his discomfort. This being exceedingly glad is exactly how Jonah should have responded to the idea of the Lord saving Nineveh. And we saw that last week. We looked in Luke 15, where Jesus was speaking to people who had the same attitude that Jonah had. Jesus' point was uh, that when a sinner repents, it's reason for great rejoicing. God Himself rejoices in heaven when one sinner repents. God in heaven rejoices in, in the salvation of the one who is lost. And His point was that because God does, we ought to as well. Jonah here should have this exceeding joy over what happened with Nineveh, that they were saved from judgment. Here, he has the exceeding joy over God saving him from the discomfort of the sun. This is the first stage in the Lord making his point. The Lord graciously and mercifully gives Jonah shade. The second stage comes in verses 7 and 8, where the Lord removes his grace and mercy from Jonah. Look at verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Here the Lord uses a worm to quickly destroy the shade plant, removing the shade that God had previously given to Jonah. And the Lord sends a wind from the scorching hot desert against Jonah, a wind that would have intensified the heat from the sun. Without the shade plant, the sun beats down on Jonah, making him feel faint. What is happening here? The Lord is dealing with Jonah in the way that Jonah would have had the Lord deal with Nineveh, just on a much smaller scale. No grace, no mercy, pure justice. Jonah wanted the Lord to destroy Nineveh, to overthrow Nineveh. Here, the Lord does the same thing on a much smaller scale with Jonah. He removes 
What he had given him in grace and mercy, he removes that shade, he removes that salvation from the Son. The Lord is dealing with him the way that he wanted the Lord to deal with Nineveh, just on a smaller scale. Now Jonah responds to this by asking the Lord to take his life. Just as Jonah asked back in verse 3, in his anger over God giving grace and mercy to Nineveh, that the Lord would take his life. This is the second stage in the Lord making his point. The Lord removes His grace and mercy from Jonah. And all of this is preparation for the third stage, in which the Lord addresses Jonah's hard hearts. Look at verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? This question is an echo of the Lord's previous question in verse 4, except the Lord here speaks of the plant. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? The Lord is asking about Jonah being angry that the plant has been destroyed. Jonah had been angry that the Lord would not destroy Nineveh. Now he's angry that the shade plant has been destroyed. And Jonah responds in verse 9, look at the second half of the verse. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And then the Lord proceeds to speak to Jonah's heart issue. Verse 10, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should not I Pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The Lord says, you pity the plant. Or the New American Standard translates it, you had compassion on the plant. And then the Lord says in verse 11, should not I pity Nineveh? Or the New American Standard, should I not have compassion on on Nineveh. The Lord speaks in verse 10 of the self-serving pity that Jonah has for the lowly plant. We know it's self-serving. He has pity on the plant because the plant was giving him shade. The plant was saving him from the discomfort of the blazing sun. The Lord speaks of the self-serving pity that Jonah has for the lowly plant that's been destroyed. And the Lord speaks of the well-founded pity that the Lord has for the great city containing 120,000 souls. The Lord here argues from the lesser to the greater. The lesser is Jonah's pity over the plant, and the greater is the Lord's pity for Nineveh. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should not I... Pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Jonah pitied the plant for which he did not labor, nor did he make it grow. That plant was a gift of God's grace. Jonah didn't plant the seed. He didn't water the seed. He didn't cultivate the plant. It was a gift of God's grace. And Jonah did not have any inherent connection with it. It was just given to him. 
And the plant came into being in a night and perished in a night. In other words, the plant was something fairly insignificant. It came quickly, and it left quickly. Fairly insignificant. The Lord is saying, if you pity something so insignificant as this plant, shouldn't I pity Nineveh? The Lord points out that Nineveh contains more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Now, some interpreters interpret these 120,000 as the young children, as it's not until you know, you're about five years old, six years old, seven years old, that, that you know the difference between what's, right, what's your right hand, what's your left hand. So some interpreters refer to this, or interpret this as 120,000 young children in the city. But others interpret these 120,000 as the whole population. The whole population is being described as not knowing their right hand from their left. And I would agree that this is speaking about the whole population. Because I think that's consistent with the rest of the book. In which case, the Lord is speaking of their spiritual ignorance. Spiritually, they do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. Now, there are two aspects to Nineveh's spiritual ignorance. The first aspect is that they have suppressed general revelation in unrighteousness. And we saw that back when we studied chapter 3. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There's a willful ignorance of God. Romans 1 says that God has revealed Himself to all human beings. You have been created by God in His image with a knowledge of your Creator. When you look at nature, you see God's creative work. And nature declares the glory of its Creator. It declares the existence of the Creator. It declares something of the, the nature of the Creator. But Romans chapter 1 says that all of us suppress this truth in unrighteousness. It is a willful ignorance. We do not want to honor God as God. We do not want to give thanks to God as God. We do not want to obey God as God. And so we have suppressed the truth and we have worshipped created things rather than the Creator. This certainly was true of Nineveh because it's true of all human beings. All right? They had suppressed God's general revelation, including the law of God that was placed uh, on their, their heart in the conscience. They, they, they chose not to submit to God's law. A willful suppression. A willful ignorance of God. Now there's also a second aspect of Nineveh's spiritual ignorance. And the second aspect is that they had received very little special revelation. Scripture is special revelation. When, when God spoke to Abraham, that was special revelation. Not the revelation that's given to all human beings uh, through creation and the conscience. But when God has spoken to man, that is special revelation. And Nineveh's ignorance included having received very little special revelation. They received pretty much one message, and that was the message that Jonah gave them. Yet 40 days, 
and the city will be overthrown. God describes them as 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Now, man's ignorance does not excuse his evil deeds, nor does man's ignorance make man innocent. And God is not unjust to condemn those who live in spiritual ignorance like the Ninevites. That's the point in Romans chapter 1. That, that, that we are responsible for having suppressed the truth of God. We are responsible for not having worshipped the Creator as the Creator. We are responsible for not having submitted to the law of God as revealed to us in general revelation. That we are under God's righteous condemnation. That we have rebelled against God. We rebelled against that knowledge of God that has been given to us in general revelation. And we are justly, eternally condemned by God for the suppression of the truth. Man's ignorance does not excuse his evil deeds. It does not make him innocent. God is not unjust to condemn those who live in spiritual ignorance like the Ninevites. At the same time, in the Bible, God delights to look upon ignorant people with mercy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13-14, the Apostle Paul uh, gives testimony uh, to what God did in, in saving him. And he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. At the same time, in the context, he says, I am the chief of sinners. He took responsibility for what he did in his ignorance. But he says that the Lord Jesus, where he says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. The Lord was delighted to show mercy to the Apostle Paul, who had walked in ignorance, opposing Christ, persecuting the followers of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 say, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead in our trespasses. Talk about not knowing your right hand from your left. And God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were in that condition, He made us alive together with Christ. He saved us by grace, because He's rich in mercy. The Lord asked Jonah, in effect, if you pity the plant, should not I pity Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who are in great spiritual need, and also much cattle? all of whom I have made. Now, the Lord's mention of the cattle here does not elevate cattle to a place equal with human beings. The Bible teaches that we are a higher order of God's creation as human beings because we're made in the image of God. Cattle and other animals are not made in the image of God. The Lord here is not elevating cattle to a place equal with human beings, but rather... The Lord is contrasting the lesser value of the plant that Jonah pitied 
but the greater value of cattle. If you care about that plant perishing, shouldn't I care about Nineveh with 120,000 souls in dire spiritual need and much cattle? Well, the Lord does not place as much value on animals as He places on human beings made in His image. He still cares for animals. I read in the Bible that, that He provides for them. He feeds them. They matter to Him. But the main contrast here is not between the plant and the cattle. The main contrast is between the plant and the human beings in Nineveh. In verse 10, the Lord says that Jonah did not labor for the plant, nor did he make it grow. In contrast, the Lord created the Ninevites. And He has sustained the Ninevites to this point. As Paul will say in Acts 17, He gives us life and breath and everything that we have. The Lord had created the Ninevites in His image. He had sustained the Ninevites to this point. In verse 10, the Lord says that the plant came into being in a night and perished in a night. And in contrast, the Lord created the Ninevites as eternal souls. We read in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, God has put eternity into man's heart. That's true of you. God has put eternity into your heart. He's given you a sense that this life is not all there is. He's given you an understanding that there's something after death. He's given you a sense that He has created you for eternity. He's created you for the eternal one, for God Himself, to glorify Him, to worship Him. He's created you to live in eternity. Now, put together what the Lord says here and what happened earlier in our text. The Lord, in our text, is pointing out that Jonah has everything turned upside down in his heart. Just like you and I do at times. There are times when we have everything turned upside down in our heart and mind. While Jonah was exceedingly glad over a, over, over a plant that shaded him from the fierce sun, and then terribly angry when it was destroyed, he has resented the pity that God has shown to the Ninevites, even to the point of being terribly angry over it. Now, the way that the Lord addresses Jonah's heart is not simply to point out that Jonah should pity the Ninevites, but I want you to observe in verse 11 who the Lord says should pity Nineveh. He says in verse 11, And should not I pity Nineveh? Most fundamentally, Jonah had a wrong conception of God. He conceived of the Lord as a God who should pity Israel, but not pity the Gentile nations. And the Lord is rebuking Jonah's wrong conception of God. It is a perfection of God that he pities people like the Ninevites. He says, should not I pity Nineveh? Now, while Jonah looked at a Gentile city of 120,000 people and thought, so many people for God to judge, the Lord looked at the 120,000 Ninevites and said, so many people to pity. 
The point is not that God does not judge evildoers. Jonah understood, understood full well that God judges evildoers. The book of Jonah does not deny that God judges evildoers. God gave the Ninevites a legit, legitimate warning of his intimate judgment. And it was because Nineveh turned from their evil ways that God relented. The point in verse 11 is that God has purpose to show mercy to the nations. And when He does, He is right in doing so, and He should be praised for doing so. Unless we believe and bow before this truth about God, we will not pity lost people as we should. We will have a Jonah attitude deep inside of us. It is because God pities the nations that we are to pity them as well. It's because God pities the lost that we are to pity them as well. Now this message of the book of Jonah was only intensified by Christ and by Christ's atoning work. How did the Son of God incarnate look at spiritually needy people? I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 9, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, to see how the Son of God incarnate the Lord Jesus Christ looked at spiritually needy people. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then what happens in the next chapter? Chapter 10. Christ sends his twelve disciples out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, two by two, to proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand, and to call them to repentance, as Jesus did when He proclaimed the kingdom. Now what I want you to see in verse 36, is that when Jesus saw these crowds, He looked at them with compassion. Look again at verse 36. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The description is not all that different from the way God described Nineveh, they do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. They're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They have spiritual need. They're living in spiritual ignorance. Sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus looked on them with compassion. And He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would send out Workers. Salvation is given to those who repent in mercy, in compassion. God sends out laborers into the harvest. The laborers proclaim the gospel of Christ, the laborers proclaim the kingdom of Christ, they proclaim the grace of Christ. And they call upon people to repent. That's the fundamental response that Jesus calls for in the Gospels, is repent and believe. 
Repent of your sin, believe in the gospel. Repent of your sin, believe the good news. Believe in Christ, the Lord and Savior who has come. Then Christ went to the cross. He went to the cross to lay down his life for people whom God is calling from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The cross is the greatest manifestation of God's mercy. Where Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, died in the place of sinners, suffering the penalty that sinners deserve. Though Jesus is innocent and righteous and holy, He dies as the substitute. He takes the penalty. He suffers the wrath of God in the place of sinners. This is the greatest manifestation of the mercy of God in all of Scripture. Does God pity the nations? Just look at the cross where Jesus died for people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. God absolutely pities the nations. Does God pity the nations? Just listen to Christ's great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the end of the age. Yes, God most certainly pities the nations. He died for the nations in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He has sent out the disciples of Christ to the nations with this good news of salvation. Yes, God pities the nations. Jonah pitied the plant. Let me ask you, what sorts of things do you pity? Now to answer that question, think of the things that God has given you that are so precious to you that you would get angry if they were destroyed. Would you get angry if your vegetable garden were destroyed? Would you get angry if your pet was destroyed? Would you get angry if your car was destroyed? How about your phone? How about your toys? How about your favorite clothes or jewelry? How about your investments? Would you get angry if they were destroyed? There are things like this that all of us would pity if they were destroyed. Now the question is, do you have a far deeper pity for people who are headed toward eternal destruction? People. Not things, but people. Not plants. Not animals. People who are headed to eternal destruction. Do you care more about your possessions and comforts or the evangelism of the world? Do you pity what God pities? Now, we are not told how Jonah responded to the point that God makes to him at the end of the book. The the end of the book feels abrupt. God's making a point to Jonah. He's hard-hearted. We want to know what's going to happen next. We're not told. We're purposefully not told how Jonah responded to the point God makes to him at the end of the book. Because what you and I are to be concerned about is not how Jonah responded, but how you and I will respond. In his commentary on Jonah, Sinclair Ferguson speaks of the evangelism of the world and writes, The statistics of our giving or praying or going in the cause of Christ throughout the earth provide embarrassing reading to the church. They raise very real questions about whether we have begun to rid ourselves of the Jonah syndrome. According to the Joshua Project, 
42% of the world's nearly 8 billion people live in unreached people groups. And they define an unreached people group as a people group among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize this people group without outside assistance. So it's an unreached people group. There may be a few believers there, but not a significant number of believers in order to evangelize that people group. Not a significant number of believers to make Christ known amongst that people group. 42% of the world's population live in unreached people groups. Majority of those people having never heard the name of Jesus. Not even the name, let, let alone the gospel message, never even having heard the name of Jesus. Wycliffe Global Alliance gives statistics on the translation of the Bible into the world's languages. And they report that the full Bible has been translated into the primary languages of 75% of the world's population. Now that means that the full Bible has not been translated into the primary languages of 25% of the world's population. Two billion people speak a, a primary language that doesn't even have the whole Bible translated into that language. So there is much work to be done in getting the gospel to the nations. That's the point of the statistics I just gave you. There's much work to be done in getting the gospel to the nations. But too often, we are much like Jonah. Mark Dever writes in his commentary on Jonah, we're not supposed to read Jonah and then think to ourselves, how ungrateful that Jonah is. I would never be so unloving to others as he is. Rather, we are supposed to think, if the heart of a prophet of God can become so wrongly hardened to God's priorities, God's love and God's mercy, how much more do I need to watch over my own heart? We have to ask ourselves, after studying the book of Jonah, do we pity the lost around us? And do we pity the nations abroad who are perishing? Do we as individual members of God's family faithfully reflect the grace and mercy that our Heavenly Father has for the lost wherever they are? Are, are we as a church a good picture of our gracious and merciful God? How much do we sacrificially give toward world missions? Now, when I'm asking about sacrificially giving towards world missions, I'm not talking about giving towards social work in other countries. Social work is not missions. Now, missionaries may care for the physical needs of those they go to, but that's not the, the goal. That's not the end. What missions is about is taking the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the nations that sinners might hear the gospel of Christ and by the Spirit of God understand the gospel of Christ and by the Spirit of God they might repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior so that they are now a new creation and they take the gospel and they share that with others. And as more and more people are saved, a church is started. A church is planted. This is God's design. This is what God is doing in, in history. He takes the gospel to another place. 
people are saved and a church is started. Where the gospel is preached along with the whole counsel of God. Where the new believers are fed the word of God. And their souls are shepherded by men who meet the biblical qualifications for elders given in Scripture. A church is formed. And that church grows in Christ to the point that then it can go ahead and plant, take the gospel to other communities and start churches in other communities. That's the heart of missions. How much do we sacrificially give toward world missions? As a church, we financially support a missionary couple in East Asia, a couple in Central Asia, a couple ministering to Latin America, a missionary who oversees a ministry to Jewish people throughout the world. We financially support a Bible school in El Salvador. We support the Gideons International. Now this is a good starting point. And it would be good if we could support more and more missionaries. In light of the book of Jonah, this should be a great desire of us as a church. We should have a desire that over time we'd be able to financially support more and more missionaries. That as we sacrificially give to the Lord's work, we'd be able to give more financial support to missionaries who are taking the gospel to other parts of the world. How much do you pray for specific missionaries and for world missions more generally? We try to share with you when we receive updates from the missionaries that we support. We don't do that just so that you can just simply be aware of what our missionaries are doing overseas. But we share those things, including in, in the Wednesday night prayer meeting, including recently we put copies of newsletters by the bulletins. We share these things so that you can pray for the missionaries that we support and pray for them specifically. A a book that you might find useful in praying for global missions is the book Operation World. This is the latest edition. This is from 2010, so it is a little dated. But it has information on every country in the world. And it gives you information about the spiritual condition of that country. It gives you information about to what extent has the gospel been brought there. Uh, what is the state of the church there. So that you can pray intelligently. Your, your prayers can be informed for the nations of the world. Praying for the evangelization of the world. Operation World. And they have some other forms of this. You might find that helpful. But the question is, how much do you pray? for specific missionaries, and for world missions more generally. How much do you pray as Christ instructed for the sending of laborers into the Lord's harvest? That's what we saw Jesus told His disciples to pray for. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the harvest field. It's praying that the Lord would raise up men, women, boys and girls to go to other communities, to go to other nations with the gospel. How much do you pray for that? How much do you encourage others to consider going to the foreign mission field? And how willing are you to go if the Lord would call you? The Lord does not call every Christian to go overseas. But every Christian is to be willing to go if the Lord 
clearly indicates that his will is for you to go. How willing are you to go to the nations with the gospel if the Lord would call you to do so? Knowing the heart of God for the nations, it should not be strange to us when Christians move to the other side of the world, to a people of a different language and culture, perhaps even a people who are hostile to outsiders, because they care for these fellow human beings made in the image of God and they want to warn them of God's coming judgment and tell them of His mercy held out to us in Christ and how they might be saved. We should be praying that we as individual believers and as a church would be an increasingly clear picture of our God who pitied Nineveh. Increasingly clear picture of our God who pities the nations. And all of this starts in the heart. That's what the book of Jonah is about. It starts in the heart. Jonah's heart was not in the right place. We need to have the attitude that says, how can I, who have received the great mercy of Christ, be less than merciful to others who are perishing? We need to have the attitude that says, they have been created in the image of God. And Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into their hearts. They have a soul. They're not just a number in a population. They have a soul. They will live for an eternity either in heaven or in hell, either in conscious blessedness or conscious torment. But have the attitude that says, how can I do less than love them and carry the gospel to them or aid others in doing so with all the strength that God has given. We have the attitude that says when God is concerned about the souls of the nations, how can I remain unconcerned? When God is concerned about the souls of the lost, how can I remain unconcerned? That's the heart attitude that we are to have, that the book of Jonah teaches us to have. The book of Jonah teaches us that it's not just a matter of obedience. Then the book would have ended with chapter 3. It's a matter of having a heart after God's own merciful heart. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, You are great and greatly to be praised. You are a gracious God and merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And for each of these perfections, you are to be praised and exalted. It is right for you to pity lost people like the Ninevites. And you have the sovereign freedom to have mercy on whom you will have mercy. And when you have mercy on a person or on a city or on a nation, we are to rejoice. Oh Lord, may our heart beat after your merciful heart. We pray, Father, that you would strip away from our our hearts anything that is contrary to your nature. Anything that is contrary to the gospel of grace, strip away our self-righteousness. Strip away our pride. Strip away our, our, our sense that we are entitled to be treated better than others. 
strip away our, 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 our attitude that the gospel is for us and not for them. We pray, Father, that you would teach us to see lost people, to see the nations as you see them. People whom you have made in your image as worshipers. People in whom you have set eternity. People who upon death will enter into eternity, either a Christless eternity or a blessed eternity with Christ. Either conscious torment or conscious blessedness. Lord, may we not be indifferent to the lost condition of others. May we not be indifferent to the spiritual needs of others, their need for salvation. And Lord, teach us to follow you in having a heart of grace and mercy towards those who are perishing. Help us, Father, to hold out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's only one name that you've given among men by which we must be saved, and that is the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Know that those who do not know the name of Christ, those who do not bow before the name of Christ, those who do not believe in the name of Christ, they will perish in their sins. They will justly perish in their sins. Help us, Father, to hold out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Enable us to support the, the evangelization of the world. We thank you for those missionaries that, that we have relationships with, that we support on several continents involved in this very work. We pray, Father, that you would bless them, that you would keep them, that you would preserve them, that you would strengthen them, that you bear much fruit from their ministries, enable them to glorify you on the mission field. I pray, Father, that you would raise up some individuals who are in this room to go to the nations with the gospel, to go as missionaries to the lost, even to the unreached peoples of this world, even to unreached people where, who live in countries where the government is hostile towards the entrance of Christianity into their country. Hostile towards the entrance of the gospel. Hostile towards the entrance of Bibles. Oh Lord, may we not fear those governments. We may, may we not fear evil men who are enemies of Christ. But Lord, give us courage to go and to speak for Christ. Raise up individuals from this room to go. Raise up individuals with hearts like your heart. Hearts that pity the nations. That you would be glorified. That your nature and your character would be reflected. That people would be saved who would then proclaim your glorious name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.